Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. These promises now flying fast and furious in this election campaign. Every political party here getting in on the act. Christmas in October. They are tripping over themselves to shower the voters with goodies. Scrap the PST. Free child care. How about free money? That's what John Horgan promised yesterday. $1,000 per family. Cash on the barrel head. The part I loved about it yesterday was when Horgan said you would get the money by direct deposit. No need to go down to the bank and cash a check. Who needs that? Everybody loves direct deposit. Cash in your claw. Money in the bank automatically. $1,000 per family uh, promised yesterday by John Horgan. So much more yesterday in the NDP platform as well. $1.4 bucks. That is the cost of the free money campaign promise yesterday from Horgan, officially known as the COVID recovery benefit. The promises just don't seem to end. What could they promise next? Okay, let's check. Uh, let's break all this down for you now with my guest, Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, BC Director. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Chris. Hi. Thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, let's talk about some of these promises. It's hard to keep up here. It is. Um, which ones jump out at you here? Let's talk about the free money, first of all, from Oregon. $1,000 per family, COVID uh, recovery benefit, $1.4 bucks. Your thoughts? What I was struck by was just how clear and obvious it was. It was, hey, everybody, you're going to get a thousand bucks directly deposited into your bank account, as you say, no yeah, cost, direct no deposit. Yeah, direct, direct deposit. deposit. You don't yeah. even need to cash that check. No. Um, if this weren't in the middle of the COVID stuff, it would be super obvious that this is just direct vote buying. Hey, no. everybody, <laughs> belly up. Say but, it ain't so. You know, but it's a part of recovery. So it depends whether or not voters or the media wants to believe that this is all just part of the recovery and part of the, the pandemic uh, help here. So well, one of the thing one of the things I found weird about it was like ev- pretty much everybody would be available. Uh, yeah. 80, I think it was, they said 80% of British Columbians. It, it is means tested a little bit. I mean, if you're mega rich, if you're, if you got a huge income, you, you might not qualify. But I mean, if you're pay- if you have a family income of 125,000 bucks, you would get money. Yes, exactly. The median income in British Columbia is around eighty-two thousand dollars. Well, yeah, that's so the median. Have, so if right. this is up to one twenty-five, this is hitting the vast majority of people. That's right. So I mean, like the thing that I wonder about though is this money will be given to people who haven't even been necessarily hurt by the pandemic. So I mean, if you still got your job, most people are still working through this thing, right? So. I know a lot of people are hurting and struggling and have lost their jobs, but a lot of people have not. They've continued to work all the way through this thing. Their income has not gone down Yes, in many cases, and they still get the money. Yes, they do, uh, no matter what. So we usually like the idea of a big, clean uh, tax cut, for example, like the PST tax cut for uh, a year, because that way you're not picking winners and losers. You're not doing it niche or a boutique tax credit, as people love to say. Um, so we usually like that, but we also need to remind everybody that every nickel of this is coming from taxpayers 
So this is not just magic money that they're printing off of a money tree and giving to everybody. It's coming from our other well, pocket. Bor- borrowed money. Exactly. They're going to borrow the money because they're going to crank up the deficit even higher. Exactly. So and right, right now, our debt, I'm looking at it, it is $72.8 billion. It's going up 100 bucks a second. Wow. That's just yes. in B.C.? Just in, this is just in British Columbia. This okay. is the provincial debt. Okay, let me play this for you, Chris. This is John Horgan yesterday talking about this $1,000 uh, rebate to every family in B.C. Here he We're is. not just throwing money uh, to try and buy votes. We're throwing money at people to stimulate economic activity. Okay, one thing I've learned over the years, anytime a politician says, we're not trying to buy your vote, they are trying to buy your vote. That's yeah. come, come on, who are you trying to fool here? I was a thousand surprised. bucks of family. Come yeah, on. I was kind of surprised you put that into a sentence because it makes yeah. such a great clip. No, it does. I mean, that, that was the money clip, as they say. It really was. From the news conference. It really was. And so while we're all for stimulating the economy, we're kind of scratching our heads wondering why we need to funnel it through government in the first place and then have it sent to well, us. And so why, are, you know, on one hand, why did they come out blasting a PST holiday for a year and then turn around and said, we'll send everybody a thousand bucks? Well, yeah, because the PST holiday was promised by the Liberals. So yes. the Liberals have promised to scrap the PST for a year and then crank it down to just 3% in year two. Now they say it would be temporary. I, I suggest to you it could be difficult to, to reapply that tax politically. Oh, it sure uh, will be. Oh, yeah. I mean, it'd be a lot of resistance to it. But um, why is that any better? I mean, because that is, that's an even more expensive promise. I mean, this thing from Horgan, free money, is $1.4 Getting rid of the sales tax is, is what, seven, seven, almost $7 billion bucks a year? Yeah, last year in uh, the budget, I think it was $7.3 billion that they took in uh, from the PST. Right. And they're estimating with the B.C. Liberals, as far as I can tell, that because they're not taking it off things like luxury cars and tobacco, that it'll cost around $6 billion. Yeah, so, okay. good question. It all depends on your ideology. Do you want uh, to stimulate the economy with a tax cut so that, say, small businesses can save 10% on alcohol sales? So if you're a restaurant and you depend on alcohol sales for 30% of your bottom line, bingo, you have a 10% uh, discount there. That could do a lot. But But how much is too much? Like at the end of the day, I mean, these guys are just, they're falling all over themselves here to give money away and give, and give stuff to people. It's like, I don't know. It just seems like any notion of, of balancing the budget, of course, has just gone out the window, but it's almost like the, the deficit is just an abstract number. It doesn't matter how high it goes. You hit the nail on the head, and this is where the Taxpayers Federation are begging people to stop and think. Uh, start really thinking about every dollar that's being promised here, every little dollar that's being spent, because at the federal level, they're just throwing it out the window. Uh, during the last throne speech, you heard billions of dollars of ideas and lofty things, zero on fiscal accountability, not one mention of what this is going to cost taxpayers, the debt or the deficit. And now provincially, we're worried that, that it's contagious. Now we've got this provincial election going on, and we're yeah. hearing crazy big expensive promises coming from every different party. We need to remind every everybody, party. you know? Everybody, every party is in on it. The Green Party yesterday promised free child care. Yeah. Good grief. <laughs> There's no such free thing as child free. Care. 
There's this is no, a, that doesn't amazing. exist. Let's talk about tenants now who don't pay their rent on time and then skip out on their landlords owing thousands of dollars in unpaid rent and utilities. What a nightmare for a landlord, especially if you're a senior on a fixed income. That is exactly what happened to my next guests. Catherine and Clive Rankin, they live near Salmon Arm, and I'm very pleased to welcome them to the show, and I'm looking forward to hearing their story. Hello, thank you for coming on. Hey, hi, Mike. Thank you. Hi, thanks to both of you. Clive, let me go to you first. You live on uh, a lake near Salmon Arm, right? Gardam Lake. Correct. Right. Okay, tell me what happened. Tell me the story here. What happened with these tenants that you brought into your home? Well, they came in roughly um, February the 1st this year, and within a month of arrival, the COVID hit, and one of them immediately said, I can't pay. Um, But a month later, she got the the CERB, you know, the government grant. Sure. And, uh, but then they had a little tiff between the two of them, so one of them left and left the other one there carrying the whole of the, the weight of the rent. And she paid all the way through to but excluding July 1st, and then she stopped paying and then illegally stayed here after we had evicted, illegally occupied uh, during part of August. So, so can I just say oh, one yeah, thing? Sure. So, yes. In other words, and first of all, Mike, it is Clive Calloway and, and me, oh. Catherine Rankin. But in other words, we only got half the rent starting April 1st because the one that was left holding the bag only paid her share. So oh. for um, April, May, June, July, we didn't get any money from the other tenant who basically disappeared. Okay. Were you able to, you mentioned, of course, this is all happening during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the government had brought in some restrictions on evictions and that kind of thing. But Clive, when the rent money started not showing up and, and the tenants started skipping out, were you able to evict these tenants? Yes, uh, there was a spe- well, we started eviction. You couldn't start that process till about the 27th of June, I think. So they started easing it up, but not for non for payment of rent actually. Our biggest issue was that we were under incredible stress and both our doctors wrote letters of support, so we were able to evict for something they call cause. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the non-payment of rent. And then even that got lifted. So in the end, um, they, the uh, RTB people actually just uh, gave them two days to leave. And then they skipped without giving us any address or anything else. And, of course, as landlords and ordinary humble folks here, we can't track them down, even though we have mm. truck license number, Facebook stuff, and everything else. Uh, whereas, of course, the police can, if if there's a criminal issue, they can go after them. They can get there and track them down through all kinds of means. Oh, dear. Okay, my guests are Clive Calloway. He is 76 years old. Catherine Rankin. Catherine is 70 years old. Um, Catherine, how how much money are you guys out here? Well, I believe initially it was 4663 and some pennies. Um and then, of course, all the costs that Clive in particular has worked on. But now I believe the landlord-tenancy branch has allowed us to use some of the damage deposit, just some of it, towards those costs. So I think we're down to 4300 Clive? Oh, 4300 plus, uh, because you have to pay for all the 
summons is and the hearing stuff, there's several hundred dollars now added to that that we're oh, we're out of pocket anyway. What, what a nightmare! What is this? What what kind of impact has this had on you, Clive? You guys are not rich people, right? No, well, we are in some respects. We live in a beautiful spot, and we've got a little bit of money in the house here, but unfortunately our pensions are so low that um, we ended up having to, all of that money had to increase our debt um, because we didn't have anything surplus to dip into. Um, so that was that was really worrying for us. You know what happens? You can't recover eh? when you're a senior. You can't sort of say, oh, I'll kiss that goodbye, and I'll, I'll just work a bit harder next week, do some overtime and recover that's the biggest issue I think we seniors have is that if you lose money or lose issues, you you can't really recover it. Okay, Catherine, did you guys uh, did you guys come close to losing your house there, or did you you, you considered selling the house? I understand we did, and I just love it here. Um, so we did bring in a realtor and, and try and get an idea of you know what it would cost and or how it would sell. And yeah, we we seriously considered it. I think part of it, besides the money, because it's this house is um, there's a lot of maintenance here. There's a lot of maintenance. It was built in '96. Kive and Insects built it, that big part of it, and um, so just the cash flow isn't enough. So. Um, but it's beautiful because it's near a quiet lake, or we're right on the side of a quiet lake. So okay, is there any way you can recover these funds? Like the tenants have skipped out, you don't know where they are, right, Clive? That's right. The, the yeah. nightmare is now tracking them down. We we have a summons at uh, Salmon Arm, um, a provincial court there, a small claim summons uh, to a payment hearing. But nowadays yeah. you can't just send it by email as you could during COVID. The rules are back to the old days where you have to hand deliver the summons to them. And if you don't know where they are, you have to hire a private detective and spend more money there. <laughs> so wow. that's the nightmare we're in right now. I must say one of the saddest things we had to do was to garnish. We, we found out where their bank, where they were banking and we had to go and garnish their bank accounts. And I, I thought, you know, if you're, in trouble on low money as a tenant, just wearing a, a compassionate hat here, how hard that might be to have suddenly your money taken out of your account to pay a debt, albeit you owe the money. But um, it, I felt pretty sick about that because that might have been some food money for a poor tenant. So I, I want to temper our, our, our distress with what I think the government has caused the tenants to go through. Okay, do you, do you think that, I mean, I guess there's a per, there may be a perception out there that you know, ten landlords are, are are rich fat cats people who are you know running big apartment buildings, but or whatever. But there are so many people like yourselves, maybe who are just decide to take in tenants in their home just to help make ends meet if they're on fixed income. Do Absolutely, th- or yeah. we have so much sympathy. We've heard of a fair number of younger people and even immigrants who are first time buyers in Canada. They they get what is called a mortgage helper. In other words, they rent a small part of their home out in order to get the mortgage to buy the house they need for shelter. So it's it's not just us. Surprisingly, we found out that it's hitting a, a large number of people. I'm sure a lot more in the Vancouver area than out here, but who knows? The government has done a lot for tenants. Do you think, Catherine, that there should be something for let's say, low-income landlords or landlords generally, or perhaps especially landlords who are struggling like yourself? Oh, I definitely do. I've, yeah. I've heard of so many landlords when I just happened to 
go to a dance exercise, or I've run into several women there who say, oh, no, we used to be a landlord, and, and we're not going to be anymore. So um, I really I want housing for people on low income. I want that. Right. But, but, but also, yeah, we, we want to, to get some kind of compensation for us. So we're hoping to put a proposal in the government that they, in some kind of a, uh, like we see ourselves as victims here. It's like yeah. a victim's compensation fund for for low to lower income landlords would be a, a very sensible thing to do. Well, and I'm thinking that not only because of the COVID situation, that definitely made it much more challenging because of the policy that the BC government put in, yes. but just so many landlords outside of COVID, that when uh, the tenants skip out, there doesn't seem to be much help. And I think there should be great help for both situations. The people uh, like us, because of the COVID ruling, um, wherein the tenants could ask for rent relief, but ours didn't. And uh, there were many reasons, I think, for that. But so we were left stranded. But also outside of COVID, I'd love to see something happen for landlords generally. Okay. Uh, um, I'm sorry for your troubles, and, and I hope it works out for you in the end, but thank you coming, for coming on and telling your story. Thank you. Well, thank you, and good, good luck to other landlords that are going through the same as us. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks a lot. That is Clive Calloway, his uh, partner, Catherine Rankin. They are homeowners near Salmon Arm, and you heard them tell their story there of the tenants who disappeared. They're, they are out over $4,000 living on a fixed income, considered selling their property to make up for the money. Time to offer cheaper rates. And the way to get cheaper rates is to introduce competition for all forms of auto insurance in British Columbia. So today we're announcing that a BC Liberal government will remove the monopoly for ICBC. We'll open up the auto insurance market to competition for all forms of auto insurance. Okay, here we go now with ICBC as a major election issue. We knew this one was coming. I told you Wilkinson would promise that. That was the liberal leader there, Andrew Wilkinson, yesterday promising private sector competition for auto insurance in British Columbia. Wow, will this be a key issue in this election campaign? What a great panel we have assembled for you to talk about this. Aaron Sutherland on the line, Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. He represents the private insurance companies. Aaron, thanks for coming on again. Pleasure to be here. Also on the line is Alex Hemingway. He is an economist and public finance policy analyst with the BC Center for Policy Alternatives. Alex, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks, guys. Aaron, let me go to you first. You like this uh, promise from the Liberals? Yeah, well, look, I think there's a lot for drivers to like in this in this commitment. If if And no one's saying get rid of ICBC. What the Liberals have said is give drivers a choice and ICBC's monopoly. If ICBC's the best game in town, that means nothing changes. But if they're not, and I've got a good bet that they're not, drivers can shop around and start saving money. And that's what this is all about. What's in the best interest of drivers, not what's in the best interest of ICBC and its monopoly. Okay, how is this going to work with no-fault auto insurance? Because this is where it gets a little tricky, because I heard the Liberals say yesterday that ICBC would continue to sell a no-fault auto insurance product and the private sector companies would be allowed to sell uh, like a full tort product where you'd still be able to go to court and sue. Is that right? Well, so what the Liberals done, or what it appears to me that they've done, is they've sort of picked and chose what they would consider best practices from across the country. And so in Quebec, 
uh, gov- the government insurer there, they sell you your no-fault coverage, and the private sector competes for everything else, and you can shop around. Prices in Quebec are about 700 bucks on average versus 1500 that ICBC says its no-fault will be. And then on the tort side, where they say you can choose tort or no-fault, that's similar to the Saskatchewan model. So they're, they're really picking and choosing from different systems across this country, applying those to yeah. British Columbia. But number one, they're going to give drivers a choice. They're going to let you shop around. And I think that is a very, very good thing, given okay. the prices we're paying to ICBC. Okay, Alex Hemingway, what do you think? Break up ICBC's monopoly. Your thoughts? Well, the, the, the problem is, and, and when you look at uh, the independent observers who, who compare uh, rates across provinces and, and compare different elements of of these systems is there's just no evidence that uh, private auto insurance decreases costs. Uh, and when you look at uh, some of the most affordable models in the country uh, in places like Manitoba, uh, Saskatchewan, you've got uh, uh, public uh, insurers uh, going there. And it's, it's so, you know, really, and I think this is the discussion that's come out over the past couple of years that uh, one of the biggest cost drivers in uh, BC up until now has been uh, this outdated tort-based, uh, really uh, legal uh, and, and court-oriented uh, auto insurance system that we've had. And we're now in the process of moving away from that to a no-fault system. That's where you're going to see big savings. When you go down the road of uh, uh, privatization of this sector, uh, you run into some problems. Uh, one of them is, of course, uh, in addition to paying the actual costs of claims and, and, and uh, assisting people who have uh, been in auto accidents, uh, these Private companies, of course, have to build in their profit margin as well. And then you start seeing a fragmentation of the sector. So you have administrative uh, duplication across multiple uh, private insurers. So, you know, uh, both from from the existing evidence and from just, you know, sort of thinking about the structure of of the industry, there's no reason to believe that this uh, would bring down costs. And it would almost certainly uh, uh, have to open the door to a broader privatization as well, because it's hard to imagine that private insurers uh, would be happy for long uh, simply providing a tort-based uh, product, which is is typically going to be more expensive. Okay. Uh, okay. I yeah. guess the, I guess the bottom line is, will it be cheaper for people? Like, if you give people choice and they're allowed to shop around for the best deal, will they find something that's cheaper than ICBC? I mean, I guess that's the bottom line for a lot of people. Aaron Sutherland, are you confident that people would be able to find cheaper insurance? If the if the public if the private companies were allowed to compete, yeah, well that's that's what this is all about. I mean, Alex is saying that no, ICBC is the most efficient game in town because of its monopoly, and and if he's correct, then nothing would change. So I don't understand why there's any opposition to this because if ICBC is the best game in town, nothing changes. But if they're not, people can shop around and find those savings. We're not talking about privatization. We're just talking about giving drivers a choice. And let's not forget. ICBC doesn't have a great track record in this province. They're clearly a bloated, inefficient corporation. They have twice as many staff as any other insurer. And it's 2020, yet we still can't purchase our car insurance online. Come on, these guys have failed to innovate. Let's bring that competitive incentive here. Let's force ICBC to focus relentlessly on its customers' needs. And if it can't, let's let people take their business elsewhere so they can find savings and put a little money back in their pockets. Alex Hemingway, what do you say to that? Because I think for a lot of people, that's maybe the most compelling argument that if ICBC is so great, like the government is telling us, well, let them compete. And if they're as great as they say, then they've got nothing to worry about. How do you, how do you respond to that? 
Yeah, well, I think you, you do want to pay attention to what's happened in other jurisdictions. And, and when you look, uh, again, you know, those most efficient, lowest price jurisdictions being uh, uh, um, public insurers in, in provinces like Manitoba and Saskatchewan, uh, that's that tells you something. You've got to think about what's actually happening here. What are the costs that are uh, driving uh, the price of auto insurance? Uh, and and we know we should we should instead of sort of uh, uh, imagining what might happen uh, if we uh, open it up to the private sector, should think about what the actual costs on the table are. And and we know that that big cost driver is uh, that tort based system that we've had in BC, that court-oriented system, uh, having the private sector uh, come in and use that model isn't really going to help. Now, let's be clear. Of of course, if if you go down this road, there are going to be a few people uh, who are uh, going to have lower insurance. But if you're talking about overall the broad uh, uh, majority of the population, the price is going to go up because you've got to build in uh, the profits. You've got to build in that uh, extra administrative cost. And that's just uh, the, the reality of it. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, why not just wait and see? Well, think about what, what, what often happens uh, uh, in terms of public institutions. A, a, a very typical model for uh, undermining uh, public programs or institutions uh, for, for those who are interested in cutting them uh, is to uh, uh, starve them over time, make them not work so great, get people frustrated with them, uh, and to try and build support to get rid of them altogether. So, you know, I, I think we should uh, wonder whether that might be part of uh, what's happening here in terms of the, the long game of, of, okay. uh, of over decades uh, uh, groups trying to get rid of uh, our public insurance option. In BC. Okay. Uh, Aaron Sutherland, jump in here. What do you say to him? Uh, I would just say, look, the only person ICBC can blame is itself. ICBC is an election issue because in the past three years, its rates have jumped dramatically for everyone. Young drivers, it's all going through the roof. And again, I keep hearing that, you know, ICBC is efficient, private insurers, you know, they're going to be too expensive. And if that is the case, then why is there so much concern for giving customers a choice? Uh, That's what this all comes down to. You know, most of the Canadians and virtually everyone else uh, in North America have a choice in car insurance. They can shop around. They can find those savings. Uh, Why should it be different here in British Columbia? My guess, Aaron Sutherland and Alex Hemingway got both sides of it here for you. Is it time to end ICBC's monopoly, open up auto insurance to private sector competition? That was the promise yesterday from the BC Liberals on the election trail. Let's talk about wearing face masks during this COVID-19 pandemic now. I was in a grocery store the other day. I was wearing my face mask. Anytime I go into an indoor business now or anywhere, I put the face mask on like most people are doing. I think it's been a real uptake on people uh, wearing face masks, at least in my observation. The grocery store I was in the other day, I would say at least... Maybe like 80% or more of the customers were wearing face masks. Maybe more like 90%. Most people were wearing them. The people who were not wearing them in the store, though, were the staff. The staff were not wearing the face masks. It was optional for them at this particular store. I've been in other stores where it's mandatory for the staff to wear a face mask. My own son works in a grocery store. They've got a face mask rule there. He wears one during his whole shift. Sometimes he works an eight-hour shift. And he's got the face mask on all all the time. And he's fine with it. He says he prefers to wear it. And he likes to see the customers wearing it too. Now, check this out. Should there be a mandatory face mask rule in British Columbia? 
brand new study out now from Simon Fraser University. Researchers there have found evidence that wearing a face mask can have significant impact on the spread of COVID-19. If you have a mask mandate, it could be a 25% or larger reduction in the spread of COVID-19 cases. Why don't we do this? Why don't we see governments mandating, make it mandatory to wear a face mask if you're in an indoor location in public? Let's talk about this study now. It's a really interesting one with my guest, Shi N. Liu. He's an associate professor of economics at Simon Fraser University, one of the authors of the study. Thank you very much for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about this study, which I find fascinating. What did you find out? How did you do the study, and what were your what were your findings? So what we do in this study is, I mean, first of all, we're, we're not medical researchers or epidemiologists. So we use the Economist Toolbox to do a policy evaluation on the policy of mandatory masks. So we don't look at whether masks are effective per se. There are clinical studies that, that, that do that or lab studies looking at masks as a barrier. But instead, we ask the question of whether uh, mandating masks has an effect. Because even if masks are effective, mandating masks might not if it doesn't change people's behavior or if it leads people to relax on other precautions. Sure. Um, so, so, you know, as economists, we often evaluate the impact of public policies on various things. Usually it's economic variables. In this case, we apply that statistical toolkit to evaluating uh, the effect on the growth in cases. Um, So specifically, the variation we exploit is that in Ontario, they introduce mask mandates at the level of public health units rather than at the provincial level. And Ontario is divided into 34 public health units, 33 of which adopted mask mandates at different times between mid-June and uh, mid-August. So in the middle, that created this period where some areas had a mask mandate and others didn't. And what we did is we compared the change in trend uh, pre and post mask mandates for the areas that had mask mandate. And we compared that to the change in trend in areas that didn't impose a mask mandate early on that only did it later. And what we found is that having a mask mandate, as you said in the introduction, is associated with a weekly decrease of 25 percent in uh, the number of new cases of COVID-19. So this is a relative change, meaning that if, you know, you would have had a plus 10% uh, weekly change, it would be minus 15% instead. But if you would have doubled, well, then instead of multiplying by two, you would multiply by 1.5. So you would still have a plus 50%, right? So it's the relative change of 25%. Okay. It's a really interesting study. And what an opportunity to compare different jurisdictions when some have the mandatory mask policy and others do not. Just do that straight up comparison like you guys have done. That is fascinating. Now, what if you applied that across Canada? Let's say we had a mandatory mask policy or mandate across the country. How many fewer COVID-19 cases could there be as a result? So, uh, so we did a counterfactual exercise using our estimate for um, the effect of mask mandates, as well as the, the, the countervailing effect we find a little bit is that when the number of cases is lower, um, the subsequent growth in cases tends to be a little bit higher, even keeping all the policies the same. Um, and that's possibly because when people see that there's more COVID around them, they take precautions uh, more seriously or they reduce their interactions. Uh, 
So, uh, so you know, using these two uh, elements, we uh, we look at what would have happened to the number of cases if we imposed uh, mandatory masks across Canada at the same time as they did in Toronto and Ottawa, which right. was the first week of July. And we find that uh, by mid-August, we would have had about 25 to 40% fewer new cases um, at that time. Gee whiz. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, how many would that be in actual number of cases? Do you know? So I think at that time, it, we had about uh, 1,100 cases uh, a week in, um, in Canada. So, um, so that would have brought it down to 700. Wow. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah. That's but, a lot. But, you know, it's a very different situation than now. Right now we're getting o- over 2,000 cases a day uh, because of the situation in Ontario and Quebec. And, you know, so you mentioned comparing across jurisdictions. And, and yeah. I think it's important to note that um, Ontario and Quebec seem to have a larger just baseline level of transmission than us here in B.C. Yes. So, um, so it looks from our data that um, Ontario and Quebec with a mask mandate can actually expect faster transmission of disease than BC without a mask mandate. Because the, the difference in the baseline level, um, and you know we don't know why, right, because the numbers don't tell us why, but the difference in the baseline level of transmission seems to actually be, uh, between us and, and Central Canada, seems to actually be no. larger than the effect of mandatory masks. Oh, okay. So that's why we're sort of able to get by without a mandatory mask mandate, because we just have a lower baseline level. Okay, bottom line, does the study suggest that if you did bring in these mask mandates, you would have less transmission to COVID-19 and potentially, I guess, fewer deaths? Like, would this save lives if governments and authorities did this, brought in a mask mandate? Um, so presumably it would. We do have a yeah. component of this study where we look at the effect on deaths, but uh, we don't really have uh, enough data to really be certain about the conclusion but, you know, if you just think about the mechanism, if there's fewer cases, chances are that that would lead to fewer deaths. Sure. Um, the, uh, you know, the other thing to note is that you mentioned at the beginning that we're seeing a lot more people wearing masks now in B.C. Yep. So the effect of a mask mandate would potentially be smaller if more people are wearing it anyways. Right. Right. Than if we did impose it during the summer. So, you know, right. that's maybe the kind of silver lining for, you know, maybe we're not missing out on all that much if people mm-hmm. are going to do it anyways by themselves. But, you know, definitely I think people should be encouraged to uh, wear a mask while in indoors public spaces. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people wearing masks in the places that I go. I'll be interested to see what the listeners think. We'll do an open line here in a minute and uh, see what if people are observing the same thing that I am. I just see a, a, a much bigger uptake on, on wearing masks now, which I think is, is a good thing. In the jurisdictions that have introduced these mask mandates, what is the rule? Like, how does this work? Does it, it applies when you're in an indoor public place, correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. So, the, you know, the specific list of places varies a little bit. Um, I think in there, especially the, the regions that put it in earlier in Ontario, um, limited it to uh, commercial public spaces. Whereas the, the places that introduced it a bit later, most regions in Ontario apply it to, you know, all endorsed public spaces. So that would include non-commercial places like, you know, municipal buildings and libraries and things like that. Okay, interesting study. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. No problem. Thanks for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. That's Professor Shi N. Liu from Simon Fraser University. Uh, he's in the economics department there, one of the authors 
of this new study that suggests mandatory mask policies could reduce the transmission of COVID-19 dramatically, uh, 25% or more in some cases. Now, here's what I want to do. Let's open the phone lines. Phone me and tell me, what are you seeing out there? Are more people wearing masks in the places where you go? I'm certainly seeing more. How about you? Phone me and tell me. What about the staff in some of the stores or other places that you go? Are they wearing masks? Do you think more individual businesses should bring in a mandatory mask policy? And how far should we go with this? Would you like to see governments or health authorities here in British Columbia bring in a mandatory face mask policy? Do you think that would be a good thing to do? If the government did it, do you think most people would go along with it? Would some people rebel against it? How do you feel about it? A mandatory mask policy in BC? Call me on that. Tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. This is Mike Smith, back with your calls. All right, going back to the BC election campaign now. The promise is flying fast and furious from all three major parties. We've talked a lot about that on the show today. We've talked about the Liberals' promise to break up ICBC's monopoly the Green Party promises free child care. Of course, the Liberals have promised to uh, eliminate the PST. Here's another one for you. It's hard to keep up. The NDP yesterday promised free transit for youth age 12 and under. Our own John Jang has been following that story this morning. Uh, hi, John. Hey, good morning, Mike. Uh, thanks so much. And you know what? You're right. There's been a lot of these promises being made, and it can be confusing. I'll just quickly remind our listeners that Global BC's website has an election promise tracker where you can stay on top of all the things that are being issued. Good to know. Okay, so how does this one work for transit? Well, it's an interesting one because uh, NDP leader John Horgan said that if his party wins this election here, the NDP will promise free transit for youth aged 12 and under. In my opinion, it's a step in the right direction, but still not enough. Uh, I did, however, I'll be transparent. I'm not a parent, so this really doesn't impact me. I'm 30 years old. I'm well outside this range. I did, however, (laughs) speak with Patty Backus. She's the columnist at the Georgia Strait. And a couple of years ago, she had written an article about how it was, quote, time to get behind the free transit movement. So I asked her, you know, what are your thoughts about this NDB promise? And she said she approves of it, but more can be done. Oh, well, making transit fare-free for, for kids up to 12 or, you know, even better would be up to 18 is a really positive policy to take. Uh, it has a number of benefits. Uh, you know, for sure, it makes it a lot easier for teachers to take kids on field trips. Often just the transportation portion is a barrier to getting kids out uh, in the community uh, to experience all the different resources that are available. So right off the bat, that would uh, make it just incredibly more accessible for teachers who want to take groups of students out around the community. Um, secondly, it, it's an equity piece. I mean, for a lot of families, uh, we encourage people to live car-free. We have parents who may have their own bus passes to get to work, but this would actually make it more affordable for them to take their kids' places on weekends and, and get out in the community. Um, and again, we have families who uh, access educational programs, you know, in different parts of the city. They don't always go to school within walking distance. So I think this would be a really positive uh, move. I don't think it would be expensive um, in that a lot of these students would be traveling in the off-peak times, not necessarily at rush hour. Um, but uh, 
and get them building those habits of being transit users. I think that's a, that's a great way to go. Okay, is Patty back? Is there in conversation with her own John Jang as a contributor here on the Mike Smith Show? So, John, that's interesting that I didn't hear a price tag on, on this one yesterday. I heard Patty say she doesn't think it will be that expensive. And you got to look at the kind of the fine print on this. So the NDP are saying free transit for kids age 12 and under. Now, this would apply to TransLink, which, of course, operates in Metro Vancouver, but also bc transit and there's like 130 communities all around british columbia that are serviced by bc transit so this would apply in a lot of communities all across the province but right now kid if you got a kid under five they already ride for free so you're talking about expanding that from age five to age 12 so that's what they're talking about here and so what kind of impact could that have do you think well, that's a good question. That's something I asked her here because uh, in that article that she wrote, uh, which you can still find, by the way, on straight.com, uh, it, it's interesting because in her experience uh, working in the uh, school system, she had problems where if students didn't have access to school using transit, there was the issue where sometimes they would miss class or ultimately have to drop out. So she was kind of speaking here on the importance of providing more resources to youth. Yeah, for sure. I know when I was on the Vancouver School Board, we used to be able to provide uh, fare saver tickets to students who would, would sometimes approach their administrator saying, I don't have bus fare to get to school. Um, and that became more difficult as budgets were, were shrunk. And, and it just seemed to me appalling that we spend thousands of dollars of public fund a year on to fund education, but we some kids can't get to their school. They can't afford to spend that money. And it can really add up for families who have to pay that, that bus fare. There's for their kids. So I would absolutely get behind a, a policy like this. I'd love to see it extended up to 18 because for, for teens and youth, that could really, uh, really be a big benefit and allow them to get to, to jobs and to school and, and really participate more fully, particularly in the city when this transit options are available. Okay. Well, she would like to see it expanded these days. Who knows? It seems like the promises are new every day. There's something new. There's a bigger, bolder promise. So I don't know. Just wait. Maybe someone will promise that next. But I wonder if I wonder if any of these parties might at some point promise free transit period for everybody, John. Absolutely. That was the next thing that I tackled with Patty, because it's great that we're talking about free transit for 12 and under, maybe one day 18 and under. But what about the rest of us? What about me? What about you, Mike? We all deserve a break, too. So I asked her, hey, how about we think about a bigger picture? And she said, well, there are some obstacles facing universal free transit. Well, that's that's a much bigger, bigger choice. I think that would be wonderful. Uh, That becomes a, a big funding question where I think the doing doing this this step for children and youth isn't going to be a big funding challenge. It doesn't isn't probably going to cost the system much at all, if anything. Uh, to, to go completely fare free, which I think would make a lot of sense, is a big shift. We know providing uh, public transit is expensive. It's a big budget piece uh, supporting the operations and the capital investment. So I, I, that would be a much larger discussion of how would we pay for that. But, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't be opposed to having a good look at that either. But for now, I would say, you know, getting kids uh, free access to our public transit system, I think, is a really positive uh, step. And I, I applaud that one from the BCNDP. Okay, maybe we should make just make everything free. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be I mean, okay I'm, with that. Well, look, I mean... Okay, I mean, that sounds great, but I mean, you just take a look at the budget for TransLink. Like, I believe the, their fair revenue is something like 31% or more. So, 
you know, if you're talking about free transit for everyone, where does the one-third budget hit come for transit? Like, there's no free lunch out there. This costs millions, millions and millions of dollars. But we're living in an era now where, it, I don't know, the price tag of these promises don't seem to matter that much. On the other hand, there are some obvious benefits to getting people on transit, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I also reached out to Vancouver City Councilor Jean Swanson. She has advocated for a long time for free transit for kids up to 18, similarly here with Pattis, uh, sorry, Patty, uh, my apologies. But Jean also mentioned that, look, one of the benefits that we could get for free transit for, for everyone, if we can eventually get there, is the fact that, yes, it would be a difference in terms of finances, but any cost, in her words, would be recouped in less cost dealing with greenhouse gas emissions. So overall, yes, you would have to shift some of the money and how it's being used, but because more people would, in theory, be using public transit and therefore less cars on the road, it actually helps out the environment and can help out the province financially long term. All right. Thanks for staying on top of it, John. You got it. Thank you very much. All right. That's John Jang. He's a contributor here on the show.